Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. A couple of years ago, we took a fascinating look at zombies with Kyle Bishop, author of American Zombie Gothic, The Rise and Fall and Rise of the Walking Dead in Popular Culture. At that time, it seemed like we were at the crest of a, a zombie renaissance. Kyle Bishop says that zombie movies reflect our cultural anxieties. Such movies and TV shows have addressed the violence of the Vietnam War, fears of mass annihilation during the Cold War, and anxieties related to 9-11. Interest in the undead has only intensified since that time. AMC's The Walking Dead is the top-rated cable show. World War Z was a recent top-selling movie. And now zombies are invading academia. Increasing numbers of professors are teaching and researching cultural history related to the undead and disciplines ranging from economics to religion. We're going to talk about this phenomenon and investigate what it means with Kyle Bishop, who is Associate Professor and English Department Chair at Southern Utah University. Kyle Bishop, welcome back to the program. Hey, Tom. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate you taking the time. As we said uh, in the previous program, and you write in preface to your book, uh, you, you had an interest in, in, I guess, monster movies, scary movies from pretty early on, to, much to your mother's chagrin. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've always been fascinated by monsters because um, if you really think about it, there are things that should repulse us, but they invariably attract us over and over and over again. And no matter how sophisticated or advanced a culture gets, it doesn't seem like they ever grow out of the need for monsters. So that's always really interested me. So what do you do? You sit down for a scary movie. I guess it uh, affects different people differently. I just kind of leave more scared. But is there something right. cathartic there? Well, there's supposed to be. Uh, if, if we go back, like you say, to the uh, to the original Greek idea of entertainment, uh, we're supposed to be able to cathartically exercise the bad emotions that we might otherwise feel when we see them enacted through fiction or on the stage or nowadays through movies and television. So if you're already fearful of something or if you have some anxiety or if you maybe are harboring some socially unacceptable urges, you can go to a horror movie or a monster movie. You can experience those emotions in a safe environment and then you're supposed to walk out of the theater being a better person, a person who's now more able to integrate back into society. It doesn't always work, but that's certainly the philosophy. Now, zombies are very interesting, uh, unique in many ways. Uh, you know, vampires come out of Europe, uh, werewolves, uh, and as you say, most cultures have, have monsters of some kind. Tell us what's unique about zombies. Well, this has now become a little bit of a point of contention, but if we're going to use the actual term zombie, which um, I think is important, we're really talking about uh, the what came out of the slave trade when various types of African superstition and mythology and religion was kind of fused in a rather unnatural way with the idea of Western Christianity. And this shows up most prevalently in Haiti, but it's, a, it's apparent in a number of other West Indian islands and nations. It's basically the, the idea of the African mythology of the zombie is a spirit that's kind of trapped on the earth, much in the way that a regular ghost would be, or a more universal term would be revenant. But I, I argue that the, that idea kind of fused with the Christian teaching of resurrection and really came up with this idea of what if the body came back without the soul? Uh, what if there was a body trapped on the earth and it had no agency? And if you think about it, that's kind of the the obvious monster that an enslaved race would come up with. The idea that, that slaves still have their own thoughts. They still have their own minds. So what is the last thing that you could take away from a slave? And that would be the conscious mind. And so being enslaved without consciousness would be the it would be the ultimate monster, really, to uh, to the slaves in in Haiti and the West Indies. So, the so when that merges with voodoo, uh, the zombie is born. Hmm. So the first audience, if you will, is, are, the, are the slaves themselves. This is the scariest nightmare. Oh yeah, absolutely. And it was also used. Uh, there's there've been a number of great books about voodoo culture, especially at the turn of the last century, where on the one hand, uh, the threat of becoming a zombie was was kind of useful to keep the slaves at bay, but it was also kind of a check and balance for the slave owners as well, because they didn't trust the voodoo rites and rituals that were going on in the slave camps. And then after the the revolution in Haiti, you you started to see. Um, 
the, the Haitians in power, using it to manipulate and control the Haitians who weren't in power. And so this, this fear of enslavement continued to be a prevailing ideology that kind of kept everybody in check. I watched your very interesting uh, TEDx SUU talk, by the way. It's, it's on your website. Uh, and I encourage people to go and, and, and view that, of course, you know, wait until we're done here. But uh, uh, you, uh, you talk about real zombies. The fact that Zora Neale Hurston, famous writer, actually met a zombie, quote unquote, in the 1930s. Yeah. Well, in, in, according to the Haitian folk life, uh, zombies are real. They're just not quite the conception that we think of today. Um, the original legends of the zombie, which were written about by William Seabrook initially in the 20s and then later by Zora Neale Hurston and even in the 80s by Wade Davis from Harvard, is the idea of someone who has been poisoned uh, and poisoned in such a way initially that they appear to be dead. And this is accomplished through the use of tetrodotoxin, which is a poison derived from a pufferfish. And so the, the, the victim of this powder, this coupe poudre, uh, would appear to be dead. And since Haiti is a, is a tropical nation, they would bury the body almost immediately. And later that night, the, the nefarious agents responsible for the poisoning would go dig the body up. Unfortunately, after being severely poisoned and then buried in an airtight container, uh, the victim would either be dead, or if they got to the victim soon enough, uh, the person would have suffered severe brain damage, making them very pliable to suggestion and having lost a lot of their conscious thought and agency. So these, these poor folk would be dug up and sold to another part of the island to work in the sugar fields. Uh, where they wouldn't have to be paid and they wouldn't have to be compensated and, and the family wouldn't come looking for them because the family would think that they had been dead and b properly buried. And so that's the tradition that existed in Haiti for a long time. And when you, when you kind of doubt it, and it, if, you, if you doubt Zora Neale Hurston's photographic evidence, by the way, her book Tell My Horse includes a photo of this zombie person, um, the Haitian criminal code actually has a law in place uh, making the turning of someone into a zombie illegal. And I think that that's, uh, that's pretty good evidence that it was a problem there for a time. Do, do, is there any evidence that it still goes on? Well, Wade Davis said that the knowledge was still around in the 80s. Um, I'm not convinced at all that it's still a practice, that, that it's still a problem. But you know, who knows? In, in underground illegal movements and back alleys, it's, it's entirely possible. I think in most Western worlds, we probably have problems uh, with, with people being poisoned or kidnapped or sold into slavery. Uh, one scholar uh, actually made the argument that that's what Jeffrey Dahmer was trying to do with his crazy lobotomy experiments, is he was trying to figure out how to zombify his sex slaves. So if you think about it in those terms, a real-world application of the zombie mythology is certainly possible, and I think it's one of the most terrifying fates that we could imagine. Yeah, that is, it is terrifying. And as you say, the, the, one of the worst nightmares where your body comes back, but you have no control over it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so you mentioned William Seabrook. He was, he was sort of the first to, to bring this back to, to America, and that, I guess that's how it uh, made its way into Hollywood. Uh, tell me about William Seabrook. Well, Seabrook is the one who really brought it to the mainstream. There's evidence of zombies being mentioned earlier than uh, than his work, particularly in, in some French writings, because Haiti, of course, was a former French colony. And uh, But Seabrook was the one who went down to, to visit Haiti during the American occupation right after 1900. And uh, he wrote a book called The Magic Island that's a little... Uh, sensational. I wouldn't necessarily call it a, a journalistic work or a scholarly work, um, but travelogues were all the rage at that time because it was kind of like the equivalent of the Travel Channel today. Somebody would go travel to an exotic location, write about their experiences, and then people wanted to read about it and learn about these other cultures. Well, he wrote a chapter about zombies and about the, the different people he'd spoken to and, and a zombie that he had met and the, these figures he'd seen out working in the sugar field. And he kind of brought this, this uh, really imperialistic post-colonial monster to the attention of, of the American West and Hollywood. This idea of, what, like I just explained, that in Haiti, people can actually be poisoned and brought back to life, as it were and uh, enslaved 
And I think that really captured the imagination of a lot of people, um, because this was a time when European monsters were, were having some success on stage and on movies, and there was certainly a search for the next thing, the next big thing. And this is a monster that comes out of the American tradition, and I think that would have only made it more uh, more intriguing to the viewing public. Let's hear a, a clip from, the, I guess, the, the first big hit, uh, White Zombie, 1932. This is uh, mm-hmm. Bela Lugosi and... Uh, uh, and you can hear at the end of this clip, they're they're selling him from his Dracula uh, fame. Yes. Uh, but but here's here's how it appeared. Uh, I think first burst onto the scene, 1932, White Zombie. From Haiti, land of the voodoo, comes the most infamous cult of all, Bela Lugosi as Murder Legendre. I see death. Master of the Undead Damned. The sinister power behind the white zombie. Zombies. Yes, they are my servants. This soul killer takes men from their graves to be his slaves, his instruments of terror, and now this fiend plots to possess a woman. Only a pink wine, a silver bottle, in a glass of wine, or perhaps a flower. Not dead. Are you mad? I saw her die. The doctor signed the certificate. I saw them bury her. Captive in the borderland between life and death. Her brain drained of the life spark. The white zombie obeys the unholy commands of her demon master. As mindless creatures carry out his cursed will, Terror explodes in horror and heartquake. Never eyes so evil. Never powers so potent. Never magic so black. Bela Dracula Lugosi. As the master of the white zombie. So that's the trailer to the White Zombie, nineteen thirty-two. It's kind of interesting, parenthetically, to to hear the you know it's that style of trailer, that <laughs> understated uh, narration there. Uh, but that kind of gives you the idea of uh, the White Zombie. Tell us about this movie. Well, you're absolutely correct. That was the first film uh, that was really kind of building on this tradition, and it, it's kind of hard to trace it now. There was a play called uh, about zombies and, and Seabrook's thing, and and if, there was a Harper. Uh, Harper Magazine uh, article on it, and all that kind of stuff kind of came together in White Zombie. But the problem is, White Zombie is really influenced by Dracula, as you said, kind of more than anything. And so it it supposedly takes place in an island nation not unlike Haiti, but there's a gigantic Gothic castle on the seashore, uh, so very much evocative of of the Dracula sets and designs, because it had been a very popular movie for Universal. And then you you have Lugosi, who's known for the Dracula role, playing a, a very similar kind of malevolent being, um, which is also problematic because he's supposed to be uh, he's supposed to be Haitian, he's supposed to be black, and of course he's not. He's uh, he's European, and so there's there's all kinds of complicated problems with the film, uh, kind of steeped in the 1930s racism. But what's important about White Zombie is. Um, the fact that the the person who is being threatened is a white woman, very much, again, in the tradition of Dracula, um, even in the tradition of the Frankenstein films. And so that was kind of uh, Hollywood's way of, of making the zombie a frightening figure for American audiences was, was to have the white woman be the one menaced. 
because although it's not overtly stated in the film because of the production code, uh, it's really the threat is sexual violation. The idea that this kind of pagan savage person would would take advantage of the white woman, and those are those are some very basic uh, racist fears that were going on in the 30s. We're talking with Kyle Bishop on the program today. We're looking at this phenomenon, ongoing phenomenon, uh, explosion of the popularity of the idea of the zombie, zombie movies. AMC's The Walking Dead is top-rated cable show. World War Z was a recent top-selling movie. And now the zombies are invading academia. There's a recent uh, article sort of exploded, Wall Street Journal, featuring um, Kyle Bishop and some of their zombie experts. Uh, increasing numbers of professors are teaching and researching cultural history related to the undead. Indisciplines ranging from economics to religion uh, to medicine. We're talking about this phenomenon, investigating what it means with Kyle Bishop, who's associate professor and English department chair at Southern Utah University. We're going to take a brief break. When we come back, we'll talk about uh, some more of this history. We'll get to George Romero, who uh, uh, Kyle Bishop calls the Shakespeare of zombie movies. And uh, we'll, we'll bring it forward to today. We'll hear some trailers from uh, Night of the Living, or some, uh, some clips from Night of the Living Dead. We'll hear clips from World War Z and from The Walking Dead and investigate further what this means. Kyle Bishop says that uh, most monster films and television reflect cultural anxieties, but might be reflecting more than that in this, uh, this incarnation, so to speak. More following the break. UPR's spring membership drive begins March 20th, and we're looking for volunteers. If you can help answer phones and complete member information, we'd love to have you join us during varied hours of the drive. For more information or to sign up, go to upr.org. What do we mean when we call someone successful? I run, jump, walk, season of the audience 26 and a half miles on average on that day alone. So I do ultra marathons in a weekend physically. Everybody has days where they come to the end of the day. I come to the end of the day bone-tired and victorious. I'm Guy Raz. Success says a misnomer. That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Monday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking zombies on the program today. Uh, you might wonder why. Well, it's it's just fun to talk zombies, but uh, it, it's, it's still a, the age of zombies, it seems like. Uh, AMC's The Walking Dead is top-rated cable show. World War Z, a recent top-selling movie, just keeps going. Uh, there are funny zombie movies and scary zombie movies and, and television. Now zombies are invading academia. An increasing number of professors are teaching and researching cultural history related to the undead. Indisciplines ranging from economics to religion to medicine. We're talking about this phenomenon, investigating what it means with Kyle Bishop, who is author of American Zombie Gothic. He's also associate professor and English department chair at Southern Utah University. You're welcome to join the conversation. We'd love to hear your favorite zombie movie or television show. What do you think this means? Do you think it's a good idea for professors to... Uh, uh, to uh, get up courses on zombies. There is some pushback uh, from from other academics, uh, even as uh, increasing numbers of professors are uh, are getting up courses. And uh, as you might expect, uh, some of those courses, you have to be very selective. More students want to get in than, are, than seats available. Uh, we have a picture up on our uh, Facebook page, Utah Public Radio Facebook page, where Jennifer Myers has liked our post. You can comment there. You can reach us at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. And you can join us on the telephone, 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. Kyle Bishop, uh, I want to get to George Romero, and then I want to get to uh, some recent uh, zombie movies and talk about this idea of, uh, of zombies invading academia. First, before we get to George Romero, I was very interested in the zombie version of Jane Eyre. This reflects mm-hmm. definitely some anxieties of, of the time. Tell us about this, uh, this I Walked with a Zombie. Well, I Walked with a Zombie is considered by most scholars to be the, uh, the best, the best made uh, film of that voodoo zombie phase. And it's based on a short story by Inez Wallace, so it does have some literary origins, but, but as you said, it's very evocative of Jane Eyre. The idea 
of the same basic plot point and, and a woman, a mysterious woman who is, who is not herself, who is presented in kind of monstrous terms. And, and, uh, I walked with a zombie is really well shot and it's really interesting and it does have still some of the racist problems. But again, it's this idea of, of a woman, a white woman in particular being menaced by this kind of unknown other, this, this African threat, this, this mysterious racially coded threat. But what's really fascinating about I Walked with a Zombie is you learn that the villain isn't, in fact, uh, an African or a Haitian. Uh, it's, in fact, another white woman. And so the idea that is pretty frightening of I Walked with a Zombie is the idea of kind of Western Christianity becoming corrupted by these um, pagan rituals and rites and the idea that that we might be corrupted because of the power that is represented by these traditions. And uh, it's an interesting take uh, on, the, on a, a pretty established Western tradition, but with a very American flavor and American type of, of problem. Now we get to who you call the Shakespeare of, uh, of the zombie movie, George Romero. Uh, I wonder if you could talk a bit about uh, what influenced Romero. I, I was watching your TED Talk. You, you talked about, uh, and thought about this, uh, influencing uh, zombie movies. Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. George Romero codified the new, the new zombie rules. Yeah, he's he's really the, the the single guy who's responsible for the representation that we're most familiar with today. So instead of having the zombie be a, a living being that's under the control of somebody else, he made them dead. He made the dead rise. Instead of having a, a single entity controlling the zombies like like a voodoo priest or bokor uh he had to be pretty inexplicable the idea that these creatures just come to life and they just operate on these animalistic drives and desires and then uh he made it contagious drawing from the vampire tradition of course uh because the main source for night of the living dead is richard matheson's 1954 novella i am legend which is a vampire novel, a very influential vampire novel, in fact. Uh, but when he made his extremely low-budget movie, Night of the Living Dead, mostly employing friends and family members and locals in Pittsburgh, uh, he wasn't setting out to do it as a zombie movie. He wasn't setting out to do it as a vampire movie. He, he, the characters in the film call them ghouls, uh, which is a not quite accurate representation of the Arabian demon that would eat human, dead human flesh. But what happened is after he, he brought all these traditions together, I Am Legend, The Birds, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, like you say, all these different influences, um, when people saw the movie, uh, they couldn't help but think of the monsters in terms of the zombies that had appeared in earlier films, uh, even science fiction movies like Invisible Invaders or Plan 9 from Outer Space. And so people started to call them zombies anyway, uh, even though he didn't. And Romero was no dummy. Once he, he saw the, the attention that it, it garnered, he kind of picked it up and ran with it uh, and made five zombie movies since that have all been similarly influential. Hmm. Let's hear a bit from Night of the Living Dead. Dead whose haunted souls hunt the living the living whose bodies are the only food for these ungodly creatures. Night of the Living Dead. That's just a bit from the trailer. Uh, George Romero, very interestingly... Uh, he, he set this up a, a, as an apocalyptic uh, situation, right? And and, and yes. this idea of of virus, yes, in, infection. Um, and in Night of the Living Dead, it's not necessarily coded as a virus. It's written off as some kind of radiation. But that's what he did that was really amazingly revolutionary. So he he made this this creature. And like the vampire, it attacks human beings and kills them and can turn them into monsters such as themselves. But like like the the zombie, they lack agency, they lack consciousness. So whereas nowadays we've kind of romanticized the vampires, that might actually be kind of a, a cool way to go. Uh, the zombie really doesn't have that in most modern 
depictions because of this loss of agency, which goes back to the original. But he made it apocalyptic. He was the one drawing on Richard Matheson to do this idea of what if the zombies really started to take over the whole planet? Because every time you kill a zombie, that's fine. But when a zombie kills one of us, they get another zombie. And so when you kind of do the math, uh, the zombie is a perfect apocalyptic creature. And so it's no coincidence that Matheson was writing at the height of the Cold War and that Night of the Living Dead came out uh, right during the Vietnam War. So it's when we're all really kind of worried about global destruction and the loss of our way of life and, and invasions by other people and, and the, the Red Scare and all these things kind of come together in this now quite classic monster. Uh, the uh, Day of the Living Dead is an interesting movie. This is, I think, the third George Romero movie. It's yeah, set, that's his third one from 85. There's a lot of dark humor there. It's set in a in a shopping mall. Oh, it, Dawn of the Dead is in the shopping oh, mall. Oh, Dawn that's of the Dead. Yeah, I've got the wrong one. Dawn of the Living Dead. Um, and uh, I think he's commenting on consumer culture and a few other things. Yeah, he's he's really... Dawn of the Dead is when he comes out and says, you know what, we shouldn't be afraid of zombies because we're already zombies. And so he, he has these great shots of the shopping mall with all the zombies outside, pressed up against the glass, smashing their hands against the glass, trying to get inside so they can eat the people who are in there. But the images are really, really evocative of of Black Friday or, or Christmas sales where people smash their way into these into these malls and they just want to shop. And they don't even know why they want to shop. They just want to shop. And so he's really, with this kind of dark humor, making the case that modernity has kind of turned us into mindless consumers, mindless zombies, that we just do what we're told. We just seek any desire we have and we don't really think about the consequences. And so that's the film where the, the social commentary of the zombie really kind of takes off as as filmmakers started to see the potential of the zombie as a very diverse and flexible metaphor. We're talking zombies, obviously, on the program today. Kyle Bishop is my guest. He says that zombie movies reflect our cultural anxieties. Such movies uh, have addressed the violence of the Vietnam War, fears of mass annihilation during the Cold War, anxieties related to 9-11. And uh, now uh, zombies have invaded academia. The numbers of courses offered and research being done on zombies, or at least related uh, fields, has exploded in recent years. Um, so... Uh, we're talking about what that means. Kyle Bishop, you you hit it just right. Your dissertation was the turned into the book American Zombie Gothic. But at the time you uh, tried to get that approved, uh, I think you had some fears that uh, nobody's going to accept this as a dissertation. Oh, yeah. I, I was kind of rolling the dice on that. I, I Just for the record, I, I did pursue an English Ph.D., so it's not a Ph.D. in zombies. Okay. Yeah, let's uh, make so that so clear. I was yes. going out in English. <laughs> But I didn't want to be the millionth person to try to do a dissertation on Fitzgerald or, or Melville. And I knew I had to come up with something kind of fresh and new. And at that point, uh, 2005, 2006, the zombie was just starting to really get noticed again. And I thought, you know, this is either going to be a big deal that could really help my career or this is a flash in the pan. And by the time I finish this dissertation, it's not going to mean anything and I'm not going to be taken seriously. But I figured I might as well just go for it. And uh, the University of Arizona was very open to it, very open to the idea of different types of narrative and cultural studies and, and what constitutes uh, readings and analysis of, of things that are significant. And they were willing to let me come and really supported me financially and, and gave, me, uh, gave me a good education. I'd applied to some other schools who were not as open-minded to the proposal. Uh, University of Oregon said I could probably come, but they wouldn't let me study English. I'd have to study folklore because they were seeing it in terms of the, the voodoo and the, the history. Uh, University of Nevada at Reno basically said no way. So, I mean, at the time, it was it was pretty unorthodox to try to do a serious Ph.D. focusing on any type of popular uh, text instead of something more classical and traditional. But now it's, it seems like it's exploded, as I've been mentioning in this Wall Street Journal article in which you're quoted points out uh, the numbers of um, you know professors researching this area, teaching this area has exploded. What do you think is going on here? 
Well, that's a really good question. I think part of it is we have to recognize that academia, just like any other industry, is kind of consumer-driven and it's customer-driven. And uh, there is a certain vying for students and trying to get students interested in stuff. And because the zombie is so popular, uh, it's exceeded all my expectations, um, a zombie course is going to really fill the seats. As you said, uh, many of these zombie courses can't accommodate as many students as actually want to take them. So you're getting students in the door and you're getting them interested. But it's a little bit of sleight of hand where students come in thinking we're just going to watch a lot of zombie movies. And then the teacher ends up teaching them about colonialism and post-colonial theory and about feminist theory and, and Marxism and, and how to close read texts and how to analyze texts and to figure out what's the cultural significance of works of art and what are the differences between high art and low art and, and what's the value of cultural studies. And so by the end of the course, the students have really had a pretty good introduction to literary studies, to cultural studies, uh, and they're better equipped to then pursue the more traditional avenues like Shakespeare, like Melville, like, like some of these uh, well-established uh, literary masters. So it sounds like you disagree with uh, this Wall Street Journal article uh, quotes um a couple of people pushing back against this idea uh, of teaching this in academia. I'll quote uh, one of these, uh, Mark Bauerlein, English professor, author of The Dumbest Generation. He says, there's a danger when scholars probe subjects like zombies. He goes on to say the uh, students end up invariably turning their attention away from the tradition, the classics, the works that have survived the test of time. You're saying about the opposite. You're, you're getting people into the classics through through zombies and such. I would hope so. I know there's obviously going to be exceptions. There's going to be students who are in it for the wrong reason or who aren't interested in the bigger perspective. Um, but if the teacher does his or her job well, if, if the teacher is really teaching what really matters, uh, then we can really see popular culture as kind of a gateway in, into a broader perspective. But on the other hand, the study of pop culture itself isn't a bad thing. Anything that's popular has some significance. And I think we need to, as cultural studies people, we need to understand what's going on and what it means. And so if the zombie is super popular right now, shouldn't we pay attention to it? Shouldn't we ask what's going on in the world today? Why are these things happening? Why are these things popular? So uh, it's hard to paint any kind of uh, academic study with a single brush. And I wouldn't say every student who takes a zombie class is going to is destined for greatness. But I also wouldn't say that every course that focuses on zombies is a waste of people's time. It's just, you would have to consider them on a case-by-case basis. And I, and I hope that my book has demonstrated that there is some cultural value and there is some intellectual rigor that goes into the study of this kind of monster. You talked earlier about this uh, sort of division that sometimes happens in academia, you know, highbrow, lowbrow, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, you... Uh, you seem to have. I don't know if you want to want to uh, describe it coming down the on the idea of lowbrow, at least to get people into the into the highbrow. Might phrase it that way. You you teach a film course. You teach all sorts of courses. I notice in your film course, you're you're also having uh, the students read a graphic novel. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you, you, it seems like you're being pretty inclusive there. What do you talk about that? Well, I think we have to be inclusive, and we also have to look at the history of academics. Yeah, 200 years ago, any study of the novel would have been laughable. People thought the novel was going to corrupt the youth and destroy society because people weren't going to plays or reading poetry anymore. They were reading these salacious works of fiction. And then uh, film studies had a terrible go initially because nobody took film seriously. It was just this kind of popular entertainment. It wasn't until the 60s and late 60s that people started studying film seriously. Just now we're starting to see uh, a serious academic focus on television, on video games, on graphic novels. But the thing is that culture changes and literature changes and the way we tell stories changes. And while it's still important to study epic poetry and Shakespeare's plays and and the oral traditions of, of things like Beowulf, we can't deny that the current most popular, most pervasive form of storytelling is visual. And so I've been working with uh, one of my colleagues, Todd Peterson, for the last 10 years to get a film and screen studies minor at SUU, because in the English department, I think it's essential for us to acknowledge that films tell stories, too. Uh, 
television tells stories, graphic novels tell stories, even video games tell stories. And that's one of the most important things for me to study, because the stories a society tells tells us so much about that society. What do they care about? What are they worried about? What do they value? And so I think there is a value in pop culture studies, whether it leads to a more rigorous study of the classics or not. I think it's important to get people paying attention to what they consume for entertainment and to discern the difference between quality and and what's worth their time. Hmm. We're talking with Kyle Bishop, who is associate professor of English, also department chair, department of English at Southern Utah University in Cedar City. He's uh, author of the very interesting uh, book, much-cited book, American Zombie Gothic, The Rise and Fall and Rise of the Walking Dead in Popular Culture. And with this explosion of interest in academia, Professor Bishop has, uh, I think you've been, you've traveled far and wide giving, presenting papers and, and such, giving talks. So you've uh, definitely been much-cited. And, yeah, uh, that's that's quite a surprise to me, actually. I uh, Like I said, I rolled the dice on this, and I thought maybe I'd get a little bit of attention. I never thought that it would become what it has become today. And most of that, I think, is I was one of the first ones. Uh, I mean, hopefully I did some quality work as well, but I think being being first at anything is pretty useful. But I have been able to travel around the country and even around the, the globe a little bit. I've been to Canada and Spain, and uh, I made it over to Hawaii, and so... There is an interest, enough of an interest in the subject matter to bring someone like me to an event and to try to answer some questions and explain what's going on. Because clearly, whether people like the zombie or not, everybody seems pretty concerned to know what's going on. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Uh, We're going to uh, investigate this further. What's behind this uh, ongoing, seems like uh, no end in sight, uh, zombie renaissance. And uh, when we come back from the break... I'm going to ask uh, Kyle Bishop uh, about an article a couple of years ago. This interested me. A horrible incident in Miami. A homeless man was killed, and then there's an explosion in you know in the, in the Twitterverse and and uh, Facebook and and so forth about zombies. The writer here in the Miami Herald decries this and makes reference to a kind of a light-hearted uh, use of. Uh, the so-called zombie apocalypse by the Center for Disease Control. A lot of interesting themes there. We'll we'll talk more about this following break, more with uh, Kyle Bishop on zombies after this. Utah Public Radio wants to know, who do you think you are? A radio version of the popular television series where you search for family connections. From beginning to end, we want to know why your family history matters, how you search for your roots, and what you have learned from your family tree. Senator I R Senator? He was a senator? Oh my gosh. Oh my goodness. <laughs> That's Sarah Pownell. Wow. Charlemagne. Are you kidding me? Share your stories with us by going to upr.org and clicking the Become a Source link. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, offering breakfast Monday through Saturday beginning at 7 a.m., featuring quiche, granola with layers of yogurt and fruit, or a ciabatta fried egg bun with bacon, avocado, and provolone. We're talking with Kyle Bishop on the program today. Kyle Bishop is Associate Professor and Department Head of English at Southern Utah University. He's author of American Zombie Gothic. And we're talking about what zombie movies and television, which remain very popular, what that reflects in uh, our cultural anxieties and uh, perhaps beyond. Uh, Kyle Bishop, I want to get into this. It, it's On one sense, it's an isolated incident. It's something, a horrible thing that happened in Miami. This is June of, at least this article is June of 2012. You're quoted in this. Uh, Fred Grimm is the writer for the Miami Herald, and he uh, quotes the CDC, saying the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, this is uh, quoting them, CDC does not know of a virus or condition that would reanimate the dead or one that presents zombie-like symptoms, according to agency spokesman David Daigle's in the Huffington Post, and the writer goes on to say the very fact CBD, CDC felt they had to issue that statement uh, is depressing to him anyway. Uh, this all um, went, went, comes out of a uh, savage attack in May on a homeless man in Mark Arthur Causeway. Uh, I think you're maybe familiar with this a little bit. You could mm-hmm. maybe talk about this, and then I want to uh, 
read back a quote that you uh, made. It gets us into some interesting uh, issues here. Yeah, I mean, we're we're seeing um, horrible things happening all the time. That uh, drug addicts or people who are hopped up on on bath salts or other types of drugs are driven to really violent uh, cannibalistic behavior. And when we see something like that, when we see a, a man at, uh, eat the face off of a homeless man, I mean, how do you even process that? And so sometimes uh, we use we use fiction to reflect the anxieties and fears that are going on in culture, but sometimes it works the other direction. So when we encounter something in the real world that defies expectations or conceptions, we can turn to our, our monsters, we can turn to our narratives, we can turn to our stories to try to find some framework in which to understand what's going on. And so we say, uh, acts like a zombie, behaves like a zombie, I'll call it a zombie, and then everyone will know what we're talking about. The problem is we run the risk of uh, causing a panic, um, portraying something that's more natural than it otherwise would be seen as, as supernatural, and, and we really do run the risk of creating a subculture that is consciously and actively expecting a zombie apocalypse to really happen. This is your quote. Uh, the writer uh, obviously uh, talked to you uh, in the aftermath of this. Uh, and you say, I've written quite a bit about the current zombie renaissance. And this is in 2012, and it seems to be continuing now. But things are starting to go far beyond the ideas I explored in my book, referring mm-hmm. to your book, American Zombie Gothic. Uh, you say, I thought we as a culture were, were simply seeing a renewed and increased interest in the monster narratives as a gut-check reaction to 9-11, the war on terror. Now, however, the zombie has become something more visceral, something that has taken hold of our collective unconscious. People, many people probably, think zombies or something like them may actually indeed exist. Yeah. Do you think yeah, that... I mean, if you just get on the Internet and do some searches, there are a number of... Uh, survival preparedness courses based on on zombie survival there's a uh, lot of stores that use the zombie to help sell their 72-hour kits their machetes uh, their their ammunition there's a special kind of zombie ammunition that's actually on the market now and so i i think that some people are doing it a little tongue-in-cheek or as a marketing campaign but i think other people are starting to think very very seriously in the terms of of a zombie or a zombie-like problem I, I think there's very few people who take something like the vampire seriously but because of these isolated incidences usually involving drug abuse there is a conception that maybe this is just within the realm of possibility that the zombie is conceived in a film like 28 days later where the the monsters aren't dead they're just infected and they're these violent rage-filled cannibals is that possible could a virus take hold and cause people to act in this way well, I think it's entirely possible. We don't know. Uh, we do know that there's certain funguses and, and that can take over the brain of an ant uh, or other types of insects. Could such a thing ever mutate and attack animals, even humans? I think it's possible. And, and that taking of the zombie so seriously is the thing that I had never really predicted. Uh, I didn't think we'd get beyond the affectation of a zombie walk. But there are people who are putting thousands and thousands of dollars into uh, emergency preparedness plans specifically for these, this eventual zombie outbreak. You're also quoted in this uh, article as uh, the, the writer asks you to uh, think about, or maybe you brought this up yourself, think about how many years in the future, maybe hundreds of years, thousands, anthropologists would look back up, upon us. And uh, specifically with our, I guess, fascination with the with monsters. Mm-hmm. What do you think they'll think? Well, I think that they will see connections with their own culture. Uh, if if the last two or three thousand years have taught us anything, that it's every society seems to develop their own pantheon of of gods and demons and monsters and and uh, embodiments of righteousness and embodiments of evil. And so I can't imagine that a thousand years from now we wouldn't have a society that has some kind of monster. Because as we said at the, the beginning of the program, monsters serve a really important cultural uh, cultural task. They, they're an escape valve. They're a pressure valve. They're, they can be seen as a barometer to, to monitor our anxieties and our fears. And I think society will always need that. 
Now, maybe they'll look at our monsters and, and laugh at how simple they are or how non-frightening or ferocious they are, because who knows what the future will bring. But I think monsters are going to be something that's uh, universally necessary for the human condition. Do you think there's an arc to, to, to our idea of a specific monster? I'm thinking of uh, vampires and the Twilight Saga. Yeah, and it seems there's, there's to be... definitely an arc. Okay. Monsters start out frightening, then they become popular, and then for some reason we want to we want them to switch sides. So we're, we're we were afraid of the vampire pretty much universally until Anne Rice wrote Interview with the Vampire. Then we started thinking, well, maybe vampires aren't too bad, and so then we got a good guy vampire in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And then we got to the Twilight books where, where the vampire is, is the, the boyfriend you want to bring home to your dad. And we're seeing a similar trajectory in the zombie narrative now. There is, just in the last few years, there's been a rise of zombie romance novels and young adult zombie romances. And it's really only gone mainstream once so far, and that's in the, the film Warm Bodies that came out last year to quite a bit of commercial success. And so I think it's kind of natural that once you conceive of your fears in the, in the embodiment of a monster, maybe the best way to overcome that fear is to make the monster no longer monstrous. But once you do that, then you've got to have a new monster to take the place of the old one because now it's not doing the job it was originally designed to do. Hmm. I wonder, uh, have you respond that we just have a couple minutes left? Uh, this is very interesting. I think it's the Wall Street Journal. Um, a, uh, a young man, Christopher Schuster, taken a, one of these classes, zombie classes. He says it struck a chord. He's an Iraq war veteran. He says he saw parallels to per- post-traumatic stress disorder. A single yeah. bite changes you from my best friend to someone who's trying to kill me, adding that war can take a child and turn him into a tormented man. Mm-hmm. So it seems like these parallels are ongoing. Oh, yeah. And the, the zombie as we know it today was born out of Vietnam. And a lot of the people who worked on, on zombie movies were Vietnam veterans. Tom Savini, a famous and successful makeup artist, drew inspiration from his time as a photographer in Vietnam. He knew what bodily trauma looked like. And so he added a verisimilitude to his efforts. But this idea of of trauma, of the trauma of, of, of 9-11, of the Iraq War, of Afghanistan. We see that every day in, in this psychological struggle that our, our veterans go through. But it's very timely that we have the show today. Uh, last night's episode of The Walking Dead dealt very, very poignantly and, and uh, tragically with this idea that how do we handle violence uh, psychologically? How do we deal with trauma? How do we try to come to terms with the world around us? Because basically, you can turn to violence yourself, you can become a basket case, or you can find a safe, cathartic way to, to work through it. And that's ideally the goal of these narratives, that we can use fiction to safely deal with things that would be too difficult to deal with otherwise. Let's hear briefly a clip from The Walking Dead. This is uh, Dr. Herschel. Um, talking to the main protagonist, uh, Rick. A brief clip from The Walking Dead. Herschel, please, we can wait. Listen, you step outside, you risk your life. You take a drink of water, you risk your life. And nowadays you breathe, and you risk your life. Every moment now, you don't have a choice. The only thing you can choose is what you're risking it for. Now, I can make these people feel better and hang on a little bit longer. I can save lives. That's reason enough to risk mine. Still have about a minute and a half left. I uh, wonder what you make of the ongoing popularity of The Walking Dead. This is the top-rated cable show now. Yeah, it's huge. Uh, people are loving it. It's speaking to something that's really visceral, that something is inside of us. Fear of disease, fear of death, fear of the apocalypse, uh, but also a little fascination with survivalism. I think everybody kind of wants to hope that if, if things do go south, that we can survive, that we would know what to do. And the key to The Walking Dead is it's not the zombies anymore that are of interest. The, the Walking Dead is so popular because of the human stories that are told. How do we rise to the occasion? How do we get along as, as people under such terrible circumstances? Who has what it takes to survive? And, and is survival really what we want? And I well, think that resonates today. We'll uh, leave it there. Um, and then we'll, 
we'll see where this where this goes. It's uh, obviously uh, still popular. Kyle Bishop is associate professor and English department chair at Southern Utah University. He's author of American Zombie Gothic. As I mentioned, go to suu.edu, look up uh, Kyle Bishop, and you can view TED Talk and many other things. For producers Katie Swain and uh, Bennett Purser, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening, and uh, Professor Bishop, thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. Welcome to Wild About Utah, a partnership of the Stokes Nature Center, the Bridgerland Audubon Society, and Utah Public Radio. The American robin, with its abundance, red breast, and loud song, is one of the most recognizable backyard birds in North America. For many of us, the robin, or turdus migratorius, is also thought of as a herald of spring. So why is it that we still occasionally see them in our wintry Utah backyards? Seasonal bird migration can be triggered by a number of things, but the two main drivers are food supply and nesting habitat. In spring and summer, the birds move northward to take advantage of insect hatches, budding plants, and the plethora of nesting sites. Then, as food sources dwindle in the fall, the birds move southward to areas where the necessary resources are still plentiful. The distances birds migrate in order to access these resources can range widely. Therefore, birds are generally categorized as being short, medium, or long-distance migrants. Robins are considered short-distance migrants. While their range spans all of Canada and the United States, extending down into Mexico, most robins do not travel far from their breeding grounds in winter and may not leave at all. Only the populations that breed and reside on the edges of this range will migrate seasonally. The robin's varied diet and behavioral adaptability are the primary reason these short migratory or non-migratory patterns are possible. Robins are preferably ground foragers, feasting on insects and earthworms in the spring and summer months. Yet, during the fall and winter, robins eat a fruit-based diet. They track this seasonal food source in flocks, abandoning their summer individualistic and territorial behavior. These flocks, or roosting aggregates, also help them survive the cold winter temperatures. As a result, robins are able to cope with the ground freezing, the disappearance of their preferred food source, and the harsh winter weather. Returning to our original question, is the American robin truly a sign of spring here in Utah? Is it strange to see this bird in our backyards during the winter months? The simple answer is no. Robins can be found year-round almost anywhere south of Canada. While they migrate nomadically, staying or leaving areas as weather and snow cover affect their food supply, there could be some keeping us company in Utah all winter. For Wild About Utah, I'm Anna Bankson. Wild About Utah is a partnership of the Stokes Nature Center, the Bridgerland Audubon Society, and Utah Public Radio. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University, where students and faculty promote the sustainability of ecosystems and the communities that depend on them. Information at cnr.usu.edu. The USU Extension 4-H Tri Program, or Teens Reaching Youth, was recently acknowledged in the Wall Street Journal as the winner of the Fidelity Investments Financial Education Grant Challenge. Proposals were submitted from 73 nonprofit organizations in response to Fidelity's search for a pilot program that improves the financial literacy of high school students in rural communities. UPR congratulates USU Extension 4-H for this national recognition and its capabilities to deliver quality youth development programs. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, KCEU 89.7 Price, and KUSU FM HD1 91.5 Logan.